All right, today we are talking about compassion. And so in order to kind of take us into that, we're going to look at the, uh, the letter from James, and we're going to look from chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. And so I invite you to hear these words. James writes, Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. And if any think that they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we do come to you on this soggy Sunday, reminded of the ways in which the rains that fall help to nurture our planet, this planet that you have given to us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the ways in which you have called us to go out and to nurture life across the globe. And in so doing, God, we might just be surprised at how our own lives are given a sense of new life and new mission. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So there are a couple reasons why I thought that I wanted to look at this particular passage in James today. One of them was simply because of the fact that it talks about caring for the weak and for the vulnerable, of course, which speaks to compassion. And so we'll talk about that here in just a couple of minutes. But the other part about this particular passage that kind of struck me was how similar it is to what we've been talking about over the last several months. It gives us kind of a framework, if you will, of what's important. And what we've, what we've said is, if this is what we believe, then what difference does that make in our lives and in how we live? 
And as we've been talking about that, the beliefs that we have and what difference that should make in our day-to-day life, we, we, we've said we've been, we've been fairly gentle about it, if you will, by and large. Um, I mean, we tend to be a little bit more gentle in how we deal with things. And uh, in fact, last week, uh, if you were here, we even talked about the fact that, that I feel like we need to be more patient at time with ourselves, with, 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 with the slowness of our being shaped more and more like God, that it is a long journey. And I certainly continue to believe that. But I also know that James, and if you know the book of James, you know this to be true throughout the whole book, James is not really one who spends much time in niceties, if you will. James always likes to cut right to the chase. There's nothing passive-aggressive about James. James says, well, guess what? If you are a follower of Jesus, and that hasn't changed how you live, say, the way that you talk, then guess what? Your religion, your faith is worthless. How do you really feel about that, James? And and just in case maybe we don't quite get it, just in case uh, 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 maybe there's a small chance that we don't exactly understand what James is saying, James decides that he is going to give us an image in order to help us to understand more clearly what it is that he's saying. And so James says, well, I just want you to know that if you hear these things, and let's say you even talk about these things, and maybe even intellectually assent to these things, but it doesn't actually change any way that you're living or what you do, then it is much like looking in a mirror and then walking away and immediately forgetting what it is that you just looked at. What, what James is trying to say, I think, is a bit like uh, whenever um, we're eating oftentimes in my own household and one of our children has, you know, uh, they're not always the cleanest of eaters and so they've got stuff all over their face and so, you know, they take the napkin, you're like, here, you know, wipe off your face and, you know, they're like, is that good? Can I be excused? No, it's not good. And so what would we tell them? Go into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and clean your face off. And so they go in, we hear the water running, it's been two or three minutes, we think, okay, something good is happening, and they walk back out, and they look the exact same. And you know that they either didn't look, which is probably not true because they love looking at themselves in the mirror, but that they probably looked at the mirror and they got distracted, and so they forgot what they were looking for, and they came back completely un changed. They looked at the mirror. They thought it was going to be helpful. We thought it was going to be helpful, but they left and there was nothing different about them. This is what James is saying when he compares looking at a mirror and forgetting what you looked at and saying that that's as silly as it is to believe that just by hearing something or saying you believe something or even intellectually assenting to something that you have actually done something. And so, James, what James is getting at is, quite frankly, something that has, something that oftentimes afflicts the church, right? Whenever there is this misalignment between what we say and what we do. And of course, that's the, probably the greatest criticism of churches, right? People who don't go to church, people who struggle with the faith, they say, well, it's because there are so many hypocrites. There's so many hypocrites, so many people who hear one thing and say one thing, but their lives aren't very different. They don't, they don't align, right? And, and someone has suggested, well, the good news about this is that at least we know 
that hypocrisy has been abundant ever since the beginning of the church. Right? So the next time that someone says, well, I would go, except for it's full of hypocrites, you can say, you know what? Always has been, always will be. Now that might not get them to church, but it makes me feel a little bit better, okay? Now, here's something that I think is a little bit interesting, which is that typically when we talk about hypocrites, we think very negatively. And understandably so. We think, well, these are just bad people, or they're giving us a bad name, or, you know, or, and sometimes, quite frankly, it is us, right? But, 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 but we don't ever really see that. And so we, we think very negatively oftentimes, and, and that's understandable, and perhaps at times that's the case. But, but one of the things is I was thinking about the mirror image and about what James is saying is I, I realized that perhaps at times, actually, it's not willful negligence as much as the fact that we have not done a very good job of helping people to understand that actually it is only as you are doing these kinds of things, as you are doing the virtues we've been talking about, being patient, being gentle, being humble, that really our faith and what we know really begins to become complete. In fact, in the second chapter of James, if you go on, he says that Abraham's faith was made complete by his works. Luke Timothy Johnson says, faith, in order to be perfected, must be enacted. Faith, in order to be perfected, must be enacted. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean, as we've talked about numerous times, that in order to receive grace, you first of all have to be patient, or you have to be gentle, or you have to be humble. It doesn't mean that. We believe grace first, but it does mean if you really want to understand God, and if you really want to understand Scripture— that the only way to really fully understand that is as you are actually trying to do the things that God has called us to do. When I was growing up, uh, I loved to look at the mirror, but, 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 but for a while there, when I was 12, is that okay to admit? I mean, come on, most... All right, I'm the only one, apparently. Okay, so... But when I was, uh, I remember being 12 or 13 years old, and my parents, as most of you know, were divorced. My father was living 2,000 miles away, and I, I just bring that up to say that the person who taught me how to tie a tie was my mother. And so uh, whenever the, the time of the clip-on uh, was passed, which is really kind of sad, quite frankly, because the clip-on tie is genius, but whenever that was passed, I had to learn how to tie a tie, right? So my mother, who was a great teacher, she taught me, right? And so we'd stand there in the mirror, and she'd say, okay, here's what you do, you know, and I'd be like, hey, Okay, you know, I was, I was somewhat impatient, right? I hadn't heard last week's sermon yet, and so I was impatient. I thought, oh, that looks easy. That's fine. No, no, no. Okay, Mom, I don't need you. I got it. I got it. So I would sit there, right, and I would try it, and I'd have a knot. I'd think, oh, this looks good, and, I, and I'd give a little tug, and all of a sudden the knot would come out, right, and there was nothing. Or I would keep tying it, and I would have like 12 knots, right, and I'd be like, oh. And so I'd get frustrated. I'd say, Mom, I, I still I don't, I don't get this. I need your help. And so she would come back, right, and this time I would listen a little bit more keenly, and I would pick up some things that I hadn't picked up the first time, right? And, and so we'd kind of, you know, she would tell me that. I'd be like, okay, I believe you with that, okay? And so then I would practice, right? And then finally, you know, I, I finally got the knot down. And, uh, but then, of course, you know, like the, the top part would be like all the way down to my knees. And I'm like, well, okay, that doesn't quite work. Or, or the bottom part, right, would be like a little bit longer, right? Something like this. And then that wasn't right either, right? And so I said, Mom, I need you to come. Can you come back and help me, please? And she'd come back. And so at this time, I was listening to something different, right? And so I began to understand it a little bit more, right? But it took 
My mom saying things, me hearing things, and then practicing, and then hearing again, and then practicing for me to get it. And and the other thing that happened is because as a 12 or 13-year-old, you don't really wear a tie all that often. And so after having gone, let's say, a few months without doing it, I would forget, right? And so I'd have to have her come and talk to me again about it, right? And what I'm saying is, I think this is the exact same. I think this is what James is trying to say here which is that in order for you to love your neighbor, right? This is what we say. In order to love your neighbor, you have to actually begin to practice it. And as you practice it, that's when you really begin to understand what it means to love your neighbor. So that then when you go back and you begin to read more and hear more about what it means to love your neighbor, it makes more sense. And then you have different questions that you ask. And then you go out and you practice it, whether it's gentleness or humility or patience. The more you practice it, right? The more that it begins to make sense. And the more ingrained the faith becomes. And when you don't practice it after a while, not only do you forget how to do it, I'm pretty convinced you also begin to forget the one who has called you to it. And so this connection between who we are and what we do is not just so that we don't seem like hypocrites and are bad witnesses. It's because of the fact that James understands it is only when you keep doing that, only then that you will really understand faith. Otherwise, your faith is worthless. And there's probably no better way to begin to understand this than when we begin to practice compassion. Compassion is critical in our being able to understand who God is and our faith, right? This is why James says that we need to take care of the orphans and the widows. And as you probably know, in that time and in that place, in that highly patriarchal society, if you did not have a father or you did not have a husband, you didn't have much. You were weak and vulnerable. And so, of course, when James brings this up, he's not just talking about orphans or widows. He is saying all of those who are struggling, all of those who are in need. And why do we need to be compassionate? Well, first of all, because it is rooted in who God is. Psalm 146 says that God cares for the stranger and that God cares for the orphans and the widows. Sound familiar? Second Kings says that God is compassionate on his people. Nehemiah says that God is compassionate towards the Israelites. Second Corinthians talks about God being the father of the Lord Jesus Christ and the father of compassion. The life of Jesus is example after example after example of compassion, right? Whether he's feeding the hungry, whether he's healing the sick, whether he is looking out explicitly as he seems to do for women and children, or whether he is suffering on the cross, Jesus' life is a life of compassion. And that word, suffer, is critical because compassion literally means to be a co-sufferer, to suffer along 
the side of. When we are being compassionate, we are choosing to not allow someone to suffer alone. And that can look like a lot of different things. I have seen it look like simply being in the presence of one who has lost a spouse or a or a parent or a child. And simply being there alongside of that person, maybe saying nothing, but in so doing and in so being there and not just trying to fix it and make it all go away, you are saying you are not suffering alone. I've seen it, of course, we've seen it with people feeding the hungry, giving a drink to those who are thirsty, building homes for those who are homeless, bandaging the wounds of those who are suffering. All of these things are ways in which we are compassionate, in which we come alongside others and say, you are not alone. And as we suffer alongside of them, We help to give them a sense of peace, a sense of hope. We remind them that God, the God of compassion, is with them. And as we do so, we ourselves are shaped more and more like him. Three Sundays ago now, we got to to Barcelona. We'd flown overnight. It was a great flight. We got there, and that evening, um, they had asked me if I would preach to their, um, to their Arabic-speaking church. And since my uh, Arabic is so phenomenal, I knew that it would be fine, and so I, I readily agreed to do that. And so I had to figure out, what do I want to preach on? And as I was kind of like looking over past sermons, I found one that I thought would be appropriate. It's from Genesis 40. I, I, I preached something similar to this. I think it was last summer when we talked about the story of Joseph. By the time we get to Genesis 40 and the story of Joseph, he's already endured much pain. Hated by his brothers. Left for dead for a while. Sold as a slave. Unjustly accused. Imprisoned. And at this stage in Joseph's life, he has endured all of those things. And then two people, as you remember, may remember, the cupbearer and the baker. People on Pharaoh's court, they came in. And and, and they were imprisoned for some reason. We don't know why. And they both had dreams. And so Joseph, of course, as the master of dreams, interpreted their dreams. And the cupbearer's dream, of course, it was good news. The baker's was not so good, but we'll focus only on the cupbearer's. And after Joseph had told him, here's what's going to happen. In three days, you're going to be released from prison. And you're going to be restored to your position on the court. But that's not all he says to him. After that, he says, Joseph does to the cupbearer, Remember me. I'm not supposed to be here. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. He says, please remember me. 
And Joseph, for whom, as you remember the story, after all of these negative things, continued to have hope, it seemed, continued to do well, continued to worship God, and yet in this one kind of brief moment, I would argue, we get to see just a glimpse into his soul, and we realize that this person who had been, who was weak and vulnerable, who had no power, who was a stranger in a strange land. For a brief glimpse, we get to see into his heart and we get to see that no matter how well he seemed to be doing on the outside, that there was a real part of him who wondered whether or not he had been forgotten, who wondered whether or not his brothers or his father or even his God had remembered him. And when I preached that sermon last summer, when I preached this fact of wanting to let you know that God remembered you, that you were not alone, I felt the weight of that passage. But I want you to know that when I looked into the eyes of these people who had gathered on that Sunday night, people from Egypt and Iraq and Syria, people who had had to endure war and death and loss and being a stranger in a strange land, when I looked at them to tell them, God has remembered you. God has not forgotten you. If it would have been culturally sensitive, I would have embraced each one of them and told them that. It was all I could do. Maybe it was because I hadn't slept for 34 hours, but it was all I could do to not begin to weep. Because you know, and I, I talked to people after, Afterwards and others the next week, you know that there were people who had struggled and who had suffered great loss, and they needed to know that God had not forgotten them. But not only that, I want you to know that what I also told them, though only briefly, because it didn't seem to me that it was quite as critical, I wanted them to know that there was a church in some rinky-dink, in some little state in the middle of a country that who knows what it is that they think of, there were a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who had not forgotten them. And that they had commissioned four great people and one scraggly guy to go there in order to tell them that we had been praying for them and that God had not forgotten them and that we had not forgotten them. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that when you pray to commission and when we give of our finances in order to support the pastor there, I want you to know that you are saying we have not forgotten you. And let's be honest, it is easy to forget. We forget enough of the violence that goes on in downtown Indianapolis to not forget the war that's going on in Syria. And that is the reason why we shape who we are as a church. We shape the way we spend our money. We shape the way we spend our time. We shape the way we use our building in order to be able to be a place of compassion. Because if we don't, I want you to know this from the bottom of my heart, our faith is worthless. 
when we open up our church to the homeless, and when we offer food to the hungry, and when you as a person care for someone who is in need for whatever reason it may be, you are saying to them, God has not forgotten you. We suffer with. Soren Kierkegaard, whose name sounds very Danish, is very Danish. He was around in the 19th century. He was an existential philosopher, which is why it's a little bit odd that he would tell a parable about ducks. Soren Kierkegaard says, once upon a time, there was a country inhabited only by ducks. And every Sunday morning, the ducks would wash their face and they would, uh, they would get on their Sunday best and, and they would waddle to church. And they would then waddle through the doorway and go to their kind of pre-assigned pews and sit down. They would sing their duck songs to God. And then Pastor Duck, not to be confused with Pastor Deck, would go up and he would open up the Duck Bible. And he would open up to the passage that told them the greatest gift that God had ever given to ducks. Wings. And the pastor, Pastor Duck, would say, God has given you wings to fly. We can soar like eagles. Nothing, no pins, no cages can constrain us at all. With wings, we can become free. With wings, we can become everything that God has ever wanted us to be. So give God thanks for wings and fly. And all the ducks would quack, amen. And then they would waddle Brothers and sisters in Christ, I have only one request today. Don't waddle home. Be determined, even now, to ask in what way might we run? We may not fly, but in what way might we run in order to be a compassionate people? For some of you, it may be that on November 4th, you're in downtown Indianapolis running a marathon or a half marathon or that you're giving funds to help that for people across Africa to have water. For others, it may be that next week when we begin to house homeless families in here, maybe you're here and maybe you're staying overnight with the homeless and caring for them. For others, it may be that you're simply running across the street, bringing food or a card or flowers or balloons or something to someone who is struggling. I don't care what it is. What I do know is I do not want you to waddle home. Because I know that there are people all across our community, our state, and our world who need to know that they are not alone, that they do not suffer alone, that we have not forgotten them, that God has not forgotten them. And as we do so, we bring hope 
to the hopeless. We remind them that they are loved by God. And as we do so, it seems to me, we understand this God of compassion that we read about in the Scripture in a way we never would if we simply waddled home and said, what a great thought. Wouldn't that be nice? How lovely. Run home. Do not forget our call to care for the widow, for the orphan, for any who are in need. Otherwise, this faith is meaningless. Let's pray. God, we know that you have taught us to be a people who are not simply about ourselves. And we know this because we see in Jesus Christ how self-giving he was to others. And as a people who are called to follow that same God, I pray that you would give us the strength to not only know our calling, but to follow you, to run after you. And in so doing, God, might this world be transformed. Might your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.